This is Mike Lee at Horton Plaza Park in San Diego, here for the Retina Society 2016 meeting. New Retina Radio is brought to you by Alcon Surgical. Stop by our booth at an upcoming meeting to see how Alcon is advancing vitreoretinal surgery. You're listening to New Retina Radio from New Retina MD and Bryn Mawr Communications. Three, two, one. I'm Scott Kriswanis. I'm Rana Jaraha. This is New Retina Radio. We're trying out something new here. A podcast. And it's going to give the readers of New Retina MD a new way to access the publication. Yeah, so we have the smartphone app, the tablet app, but we know doctors, retina doctors, especially the young ones, are on the go. So we created for you a podcast. This is perfect for listening when you're on a flight traveling to the next conference or you're in your car traveling to a satellite office. We're going to talk about issues that are relevant to the most recent issue of New Retina MD. We're going to get into some of the things that we couldn't necessarily cover in the publication, maybe get into the nitty-gritty. Exactly, and sometimes we're going to take uh, sort of funny angles. So for this one, we're going to start with Barbie. The doll? Uh-huh. It's about time. What am I talking about? The new Barbie, yep. Barbie maker Mattel announcing today that the iconic doll will now come in three different body types as well as a variety of skin tones and hairstyles, too. Barbie, uh, after 57 years of a very unrealistically proportioned figure, Barbie now comes in petite, tall, and curvy. It only took 57 years, so good for them for... <laughs> Don't panic, they're still gonna make the original skinny Barbie that's a great inspiration for supermodels and the Bachelor contestants. And you played with Barbie? Of course, she was an icon. And you look just like her? <laughs> no. And that's why we started with Barbie. Can you hear me? Testing one, two, three. That's New Retina Radio's first guest. Hi, I'm Julia Haller. I'm the ophthalmologist-in-chief at Will's Eye Hospital. Julia was oddly excited about something when she sat down for our discussion. It was a new toy and a tweet. Oh, <laughs> so um, I got a great Christmas present this morning. Um, from Susan Umfer and Kathy Moss uh, here at Wills. They gave me a Barbie, an eye doctor Barbie. She has a pink exam chair and six-inch heels and her usual bodacious figure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's in a little pink and green mini skirt, and she has all sorts of uh, different glasses, and she has a, a little girl patient and a lots of equipment, and she has an ophthalmoscope she's holding in her hand. So I tweeted out... Uh, on my Twitter account, uh, best present ever. And then I showed the picture of Barbie and I put in some little emoticons, including uh, a kiss emoticon. And uh, as I was coming down for this interview, I looked at my cell phone and I saw that Barbie had liked me on Twitter. <laughs> yes, Barbie, the ultimate feminist nightmare. Or as Julia put it, Iconic bubblehead. Here she was, an ophthalmologist. Was she a retina specialist? That much is unclear. For this episode and our next episode, we discuss the topic of women in retina with four women in retina. The first is Julia Holler, who we just heard from. We also chat with Anat Lowenstein, the chair of the ophthalmology department at the Tel Aviv Medical Center. And then there's Jessica Randolph, who's a few years out of fellowship and in private practice. And Talisa DiCarlo, 
She's a fourth-year med student who took a break between years three and four to enroll in an OCT angiography fellowship over at Tufts. Together, these women show us um, something rather complicated and apparently contradictory. They show us that while each experience is wholly unique, it fits into some larger continuum of feminine experience in the field that's markedly different from that of the man. Where do we start? We start in the OR. So, um, so this is an example of how things happened that when I was coming up through the ranks, I didn't think of as sexual harassment, but now, in retrospect, <laughs> they would definitely be considered uh, in that category. I was a first-year resident. She was at the Wilmer Eye Institute for residency. And I was assisting one of the retina surgeons on a case, and I was horrified to find at the beginning of the case that when he put on the indirect ophthalmoscope and picked up his 20-diopter lens, he focused it on the breast of one of the scrub nurses. <laughs> Wait, what? So he, he asked her to turn around and he held his 20 diopter lens right over her breasts and he said, this is a perfect target because it's round and it's large and it fills the field perfectly. And um, everybody in the operating room just, you know, kind of rolled their eyes and accepted it. But that did not ruffle her feathers. And so we did the case and fixed the retinal detachment. And the surgeon said, Why don't we give the indirect ophthalmoscope to Julia and let her take a look at the eye? And with her chance to get even? I put on the indirect ophthalmoscope and I grabbed the 20 diopter lens. And I was only a first year resident, so I had a quick moment where I thought, Should I do this or not? <laughs> but then I decided. If he had done that, then I was going to do this. So I put the 20 diopter lens right over his crotch, and I went, this is a terrible target. It's not large enough, and it doesn't fill my field at all. That's ballsy. For sure. And it didn't hurt her in the long run. Years later, during the Anita Hill trial. This was in 1991, when the Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas faced a pretty fierce confirmation battle. There were sexual harassment allegations from a former colleague named Anita Hill and they called into question his qualification. We were at the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and it was right at the time that Anita Hill was testifying. And I walked into a party at the Academy that evening, and I heard this guy who had uh, who'd been doing the, the case. That is the surgeon with the 20 diopter lens all those years ago? I heard him telling that story to everybody. So, you know, it's to his credit that he recognized uh, the whole situation and uh, remembered it and, and uh, thought it was a good story to tell. We found that a few other women in ophthalmology had interesting OR experiences. Hi, this is Jessica Randolph, MD. I'm a retina specialist in Burlington, North Carolina. Jessica describes a time when she was under the weather during fellowship. I got nauseated. I'd been sick all weekend, uh, vomiting all weekend long, and I got sick in the OR. And there was definitely this question of, uh-oh, is she pregnant during fellowship? Like, what are we going to do? And then <laughs> two cases later, when I was scrubbing in with my attending, I said, you know I'm not pregnant, right? I'm just sick. And he breathed a sigh of relief. And he was like, oh, good. I didn't want to ask. What does it matter? Why, <laughs> you know, why does that have to be an issue? That's one of the uniquely female stresses women in the OR feel. You get a stomach bug and everybody thinks you're pregnant. One thing we noticed during these interviews, some of these stories are funny because the women telling them think that the stories are funny. Our interview subjects laughed off some of these cases as, like, occupational hazards, like Jessica just did. 
But sometimes confrontations founded on sex become uncomfortable and can affect professional development. Jessica told us about some questions she encountered while interviewing for fellowships and jobs. You're not allowed to talk about things like maternity leave. And like, I'm not married or anything, but I know people who were married or I know women who were married and pregnant and interviewing and had to hide the pregnancy. From interviewers? Yes, because... Because it would change the outcome of things. And I mean, that's just the way it is. But, you know, what makes a woman having a small baby at home much different from a man with a small baby at home? Either way, there's a small baby at home and someone's got to take care of it. I assume there's ways around creating an uncomfortable situation? Uh, not really, according to Jessica. Even just asking what the maternity policy is kind of colors the discussion after that. And I feel like people take that a, a certain way. Um, you know, they, they feel like you're going to start cranking out kids and neglect your work and, you know, not be a good employee anymore, which is just false. So job interviews and fellowship interviews deal with these questions. What about residency interviews? Hi, my name is Talisa DiCarlo. I'm a fourth year medical student at Tufts University and previous OCT fellow at New England Eye Center. She actually just matched at UIC for residency. Talisa says she has not faced the same problems that Jessica faced on the interview trail. I haven't gotten that experience yet. I think part of it is potentially because I'm a little younger. Um, and also, I think generally ophthalmologists are really kind people. It definitely hasn't come up. Now, just because she hasn't faced some uncomfortable situations during interviews doesn't mean that she hasn't felt it professionally. How do you mean? Well, she isn't facing the overt discrimination that Jessica felt or the obvious harassment Julia countered so deftly in the OR that day. But she knows what they're talking about, even if the biases are inadvertent. There's some subtle bias, I think, that not necessarily... It's not necessarily on purpose. I remember I showed up uh, for a rotation once and I was standing with a tall male who just looks much more intimidating than I do and I'm a really small female. We both walked up and a resident immediately greeted the guy, had a great conversation with him and then briefly, very briefly, um, introduced himself to me and I felt somewhat ignored. Um, and it was definitely not on purpose, but he definitely paid so much more attention to the guy. And it wasn't until a day or two later when I was talking and asking questions and showing enthusiasm and, um, and showing some um, knowledge and interest that he started to pay attention to me and realize that maybe I'm someone that he should also take seriously. That's yet another example of women dealing with a situation that men likely don't face as often. Agreed, but... I'm seeing improvement. Think of it as a continuum. For Julia, there was overt sexual harassment. I was horrified to find at the beginning of the case that when he put on the indirect ophthalmoscope and picked up his 20 diopter lens, he focused it on the breast of one of the scrub nurses. And years later, Jessica faced uncomfortable questions during her interview process, but there wasn't overt evidence of gender-based discrimination. Even just asking what the maternity policy is kind of colors the discussion after that. And now Talisa, just last year, faces unconscious bias. There's some subtle bias, I think, that not necessarily, it's not necessarily on purpose. So the biases have disappeared? Well, not so fast. They're pretty intact. More on that when we come back. Hi, this is Tara Kassan, director of the Retina Fellows Forum outside the Convention Center in Seattle at Arvo 2016. 
New Retina Radios, brought to you by the 17th Annual Retina Fellows Forum, which will meet in Chicago on January 27th and 28th, 2017. At the meeting, a panel of distinguished retina mentors will prepare second-year retina fellows for the transition from fellowship to practice. It's a very casual meeting with a healthy balance of aggressive work and aggressive play. And I really look forward to seeing you at the meeting and hopefully to share some insights with you and to gain some insights from you. So for more information about the Retina Fellows Forum, email the meeting organizers at fellowsforum at medcomps.com. That's med, M-E-D-C-O-N-F-S dot com. Hey there, listeners. This is Scott outside of City Hall in Philadelphia. New Retina Radio is brought to you by the New Retina MD app, available for smartphone and tablet. Search New Retina MD in the App Store, download the app, select the issue you want to read, and voila, you have Retina on the go. Inside, you'll find exclusive content, including video meeting coverage from iTube.net, Retina news updates from iWire TV, and social media opportunities. All right, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Scott. I'm Rana. And where we last left off, things seem to be getting better. That is, until we asked Julia Haller if the barriers that kept women from shattering the glass ceiling were still standing. They're pretty intact. Sure, I believe her, but by what measurement? Well, we have some idea of metrics from one of our speakers. My name is Anat Lowenstein. I'm the chair of the Department of Ophthalmology in the Tel Aviv Medical Center and vice dean at the Sackler Faculty of Medicine in Tel Aviv University, Tel Aviv, Israel. And on that estimation, about 50% of Israeli ophthalmologists are female, but when you look at the number of women in academic leadership roles, the numbers don't match up. If you look at chairs of department, we have 20 departments and only uh, Actually, four are chairs of departments and two more chairs of what we call units in smaller hospitals. So you'd say it's really, it really shows a bias against the women because it's not 50%. And then uh, someone else said, these are the only ones wanted. These are the only ones who are willing to take the responsibility that it takes. Or we can look at the podium. I saw a few months ago a meeting that says, Best of Retina, I don't even remember with what meeting it is, it's pure, purely American. And there was one woman out of 20 men in the participants, in their faculty, and this woman also is not an ophthalmologist, but a researcher. Or we can look at the literature. When you look at, uh, at, at scientific journals, so there are women on the, as, as first authors, there are also women as senior authors on the papers, there are also women on the editorial boards. However, Almost no editorials are written by women. I wrote a um, editorial in JAMA Ophthalmology this year. That's Julia again. She dove into this topic quite a bit. A paper that showed that if you looked at the last 10 years and you compared how many women were first authors on papers that were in the, in the peer-reviewed literature and in, in the top three ophthalmology journals, there had been an increase over those 10 years. So more and more women were writing papers. That sounds like progress to me. But if you looked at editorials by women, again, in those top three journals, there actually had been a decrease in the number of editorials by women in, in the last 10 years. So although more women are writing papers, more women are conducting research, more women are successfully publishing papers. 
at the other end of the of the pyramid where it's it's people who are commenting people who are considered the experts people who are weighing in we haven't made any progress yet in the last 10 years how small of a sample size are we talking about here i think i started out by saying if the statistics hold true um, my authorship of this editorial will uh, increase by 10% the number of female authored editorials in the top three ophthalmology journals this year. By the way, the article she wrote was called Cherchez la Femme. The title's French, but the article's in English. You can find it in JAMA Ophthalmology, Volume 133, Issue 3. Julia and Anad offered a very defined observation that there's a disconnect between the number of women in the field and the number of women in leadership roles. This is the glass ceiling women are talking about. They can get to those leadership roles in theory, but reality is something completely different. It seems like it would be enough to make you hate the industry. Like, you'd feel like the game's rigged. Yeah, but no one we spoke to really dwelled on it too long. It just didn't seem to get them heated or frustrated, per se. No, it's all water under the bridge. Jessica agreed. In the end, I know what I'm capable of. I know that I'm competent and knowledgeable and skilled and that I can do anything and everything that anybody else in the room can. You know, it's not, it's not something that I sit here and kind of dwell on. So back to the question of ophthalmologist Barbie, the ophthalmologist woman with it all. She's got the brains and the looks and the bank account and the respect of her colleagues and the ability to retain her femininity while succeeding in a masculine dynamic. How does she do it? Well, I think that's debatable. What do you mean? That's the whole problem with Barbie to begin with. That's why her recent body adjustment was such a big deal. She created an impossible physical standard, and now she's creating a near-impossible professional standard. So she's not just a toy. I mean, of course, very few female ophthalmologists are looking at Barbie and aspiring to her standards. But that's the point. The very concept of ophthalmologist Barbie, it, at, its, at its base, is charged with idealism and, and some would say unrealistic standards. It's not like the cosmic forces have aligned against women entirely, right? Like, there's, there's a few organizations in Retina that provide a structure for women to encourage each other's careers. And mentorship, when it's combined with feminism, takes on a really unique flavor. And even making the decision to enter medical retina versus surgical retina might be influenced by gender differences. And, you know, kind of compounding this, I'm black, and so there's like the black woman thing too. Yeah, so we'll tackle those topics and more in our next episode. Special thanks to Julia Holler, Anat Lowenstein, Jessica Randolph, Talisa DiCarlo. I'm Scott Kriswanis. And I'm Rana Jaraha. See you next time. Press 2 to play new messages. Hi, this is Talisa DiCarlo here to read the credits. Hi, this is Jessica Randolph and I'm reading the credits. New Retina Radio is a production of Brynmar Communications and New Retina MD. The show is produced by Scott Kriswanis with help from Rachel Kagan. Our staff includes Rana Jareha, Dave Levine, Megan Beiser, Elisa D'Amato, Laura Geis, Julie Kassab, and MJ Stewart. The show was mixed by Greg Nostein and recorded by Greg, Brian Bechtel, and Frank Conti. 
For advertising questions, contact us at newretinaradio at bmctoday.com. Thank you and goodbye. Bye. Thank you. End of messages. This is Mike Lee at Horton Plaza Park in San Diego, here for the Retina Society 2016 meeting. New Retina Radio is brought to you by Alcon Surgical. Stop by our booth at an upcoming meeting to see how Alcon is advancing vitreoretinal surgery 